Welcome back to In the Context of Empire. It has been a while. This is your co-host, Matt McKenna. My semi-often co-host, John Lancaster, will not be joining us today. Uh, he's off in the Caribbean, and this is kind of an impromptu podcast. We did want to get back into it sooner than later. I've had to take a break to raise my now two-month-old daughter. She was born on June 14th, and so my parenting duties have eclipsed my podcasting duties for a little while, but a lot's going on in the world, and this, of course, was brought to my attention by my special guest that I'm having on the show today, and that's my former student, Joey. Joey, how you doing? I'm doing good, Matt. Can't complain. You know, nice weather outside. Yeah, it's, it's one of those few days we've had in the last three weeks, at least down here where I'm recording in New Jersey, that is under 90 degrees, so it is pretty nice out. <clears throat> yeah. So, so yeah, I wanted to have Joey on because Joey is actually a former student of mine, and uh, he was also a runner on the cross-country team and the, the running club that I coached when I worked in the South Bronx. And I'll just do a brief intro. Joey is one of the like most intelligent, like naturally intelligent students that I've ever had. He's one of those kids that a lot of other students really dislike because... I would say that Joey, Joey, correct me if I'm wrong, but throughout high school, you maybe did, I don't know, 20 minutes of schoolwork per week. Is that is that overestimating or underestimating? <laughs> you're, you're hitting it right on the mark. You know, I wasn't really, I would, I would go home and just, you know, play video games all day. And then in school, I, um, you know, I took your class and you know how that went. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I say that Joey's one of those kids that other students hate because he would do very little work, but he would do very well on all his assessments. He ended up going to a very good school at Albany. And, and well, Joey, why don't you catch us up? What has what what your last few years been like? So you went to SUNY Albany, and what, have you, what did you graduate with, and what are you pursuing these days? All right, so uh, when I graduated high school in 2016, I uh, went straight into the university, SUNY at Albany. And I did four years there. I graduated with a bachelor's of science in uh, biology. And I took a year off. I uh, started working and then I reapplied for school uh, to get my PhD in, uh, in biology. So right now I'm starting in a week or so, I'm starting classes again. And then I'll be there for around five years, maybe, hopefully less, but uh, that's the plan for now. Yeah. So. Like many other people who have been on this show, you are very academically focused, but I specifically thought it was a good idea to get you on because unlike a lot of other people on the show, you're not academically focused necessarily on foreign policy or history. So I, th- I think that's a strength because I want to get a feel for how people are thinking about some of these major issues who aren't necessarily enmeshed in this reading about it every day because I think that's more representative of what the viewpoints that most people are getting. So let's mm-hmm. let's talk about the genesis of how you ended up on the show today. So, uh, Joey, you texted me the other day. Uh, can you summarize, like, why did you text me, and what, and why did you why did you initiate that conversation with me? All right. So, back when I was in high school, I remember reading a book about uh, Afghanistan before the before you know nine eleven, all that stuff happened. And I wasn't very much, you know, interested. It was kind of a thing that I knew was happening, but, you know, I didn't put too much of my energy towards it. But then as I got older, I started to realize that I need to understand things that are happening around the world. Uh, Since the U.S. isn't just the world, I need to know what's happening around and how it relates to my personal life, if it does. So um, recently, when I was at work, since I have a couple, uh, I do have a lot of downtime. I uh, start reading like news articles about what's going on. And one thing that kept popping up was just Afghanistan, 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 Uh, U.S. withdrawing, um, the consequences of what's happening because of it. And I know what it can lead to. So it made me start looking more into it. And I was worried about like the future of the country. And I look to your podcast as a reference to understand what's going on. And I noticed that you haven't put out a podcast in X amount of time. So I decided to text you and one thing that's another and now I'm here. Yeah. And you were asking some good questions. And I think, you know, being an, uh, an academic, I think you, you're kind of naturally attuned to asking the right question. So you were asking me about what's going on in Afghanistan. I think just as being a humane person, you naturally, you and hopefully most people are 
empathetic toward the people who live in Afghanistan because if you watch the mainstream media, it seems like the country is collapsing. And, and I think it is fair to say that there's some turmoil going on in Afghanistan right now. But I do think it's important to analyze what's going on in Afghanistan, not just as what is happening now, but what caused this, these events. Why is there so much violence in Afghanistan? Why is the Taliban taking over? And I think a lot of people, many people, will look at the current events in Afghanistan and just, you know, as if history started yesterday and the United States pulling out of a war is what's causing all this violence. And really, it's much more complex than that. And of course, if you just watch the mainstream news, you will, many people will come away with the conclusion that the United States just needs to stay in Afghanistan, needs to stay occupying other people's countries on the other side of the planet violently. And I really want to put out this podcast to kind of disabuse people of that notion that the United States military, military occupations are decreasing violence anywhere. So why don't we start by getting into the premise of this war, right? So Joey, you, you said you're 23 years old, right? So do you, do you even remember 9-11? I, I mean, th this war has been going on since October of 2001, right after September 11th, 2001. Do, do you actually remember September 11th? No, I don't remember anything about that. The, last, the earliest I can remember is George Bush and, like, what he was doing in the Middle East. I don't, I don't remember anything that led up to it. Yeah, and I think a lot of people your age, including students that I teach now, it's even more pronounced, do not remember a time when the United States was not at war. I mean, think about how crazy that is. You're 23 years old. The United States has been at war for 20 years out of your life. And really, the United States was at war even before 9-11 in various places. Uh, so to start with that premise, this is not normal to be at war for 20 years. Uh, and then we have to before we get into what this war actually is, let's start with the very premise of why the United States is in Afghanistan. Uh, most people will say, well, the, the Twin Towers were attacked and the United States had to go to Afghanistan to, take care, to eliminate terrorism, right? <laughs> this premise that you can eliminate terrorism through war. And I just want to address like the very premise, right? So September 11th attacks... I remember them quite clearly because I was in high school and I was living in the New York City area. It were horrific events. They killed 3,000 people roughly in both New York City and Washington, D.C. But of course, everything after that was a choice. It was a choice to invade Afghanistan. So I want to just question this very premise that it's, it was legitimate to invade Afghanistan, right? Afghanistan is on the other side of the planet. And all right, so what, they, what the George Bush administration justified the war on by invading Afghanistan was that the government of Afghanistan, known as the Taliban at the time and probably is going to be in the near future, the government of Afghanistan was harboring terrorists. Now, there's a lot more complexity to that that we can get into, but the reality is the, the United States invaded Afghanistan because allegedly the Taliban was harboring al-Qaeda and its leader Osama bin Laden. Now, I think from the very beginning, we should question the premise that any country has the right to invade another country to, make an, to essentially uh, seek an extradition of someone who's wanted. So Osama bin Laden killed 3,000 people in the United States. None of the hijackers of, those, of the planes were Afghans. 15 out of the 19 hijackers were Saudi Arabians. There was no call to invade Saudi Arabia. But then there's this... this part of it where there are a lot of people around the world wanted by various countries for various violent acts. And I'll give you an example. Throughout the 1980s, the United States waged a terrorist war on Nicaragua uh, through funding a group and arming a group called the Contras to destabilize the government and attack uh, what the, gov the CIA even termed soft targets, as in schools and marketplaces and hospitals and they killed tens of thousands of people. Uh, the, Nicaragua even went to the world court and won against the United States. The world court dictated that the United States should have to pay Nicaragua reparations for this terror war that was waged on the, the, on the country and its people. Does anyone think that Nicaragua has the right to 
start blowing up buildings in the United States or invade the United States because the United States waged a terrorist war on Nicaragua? I don't think anyone is saying that. The only reason we say it's legit for the United States to do it to Afghanistan is because the United States can do that to Afghanistan. In terms of harboring terrorists, the United States has harbored dozens of terrorists, maybe hundreds of terrorists that have uh, committed terrorist acts in Cuba. The most well-known being Luis Posada Carriles, blew up a Cuban airplane. And then the United States gave him refuge in Miami, Florida. He lived, he lived out into his old age. He died at like age 85 or something like that. He didn't, you know, Cuba didn't have the right to invade the United States and, uh, or, or even just to start assassinating people within the United States. We would never say that's justifiable. So I think the, the premise is that it's kind of ridiculous that a country should be allowed to invade and go to war against another country because a single terrorist or a small terrorist group is seeking refuge in that country. I'm going to stop there because that was a lot. Uh, do you have any uh, questions about anything we talked about so far? I wasn't, I wasn't aware of the Nicaragua um, terrorists, all that stuff you were explaining. But yeah, it just goes to show how hypocritical the United States can be when it comes to um, other countries. You know, we can do it to others, but they can't do it to us. Thing that most people don't, don't think about. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's at its core. So like, it's, this foreign policy stuff can get really complicated. But at the end of the day, you just ask yourself, how would this look if it was going the other way. There are lots of people in the United States government that other countries would love to extradite, like George W. Bush, for example, who is responsible for maybe a million Iraqis being killed. Does Iraq get to extradite or invade the United States to, to arrest George Bush? We would never say that's justifiable. Now, there's more to this premise, though, because the traditional narrative is that the United States, the Taliban, uh, refused to give up Osama bin Laden, and that's just not true. And and this comes out of this conflation of what the Taliban are. And I'll, it, the Taliban are not Al Qaeda. There are two different groups. Al Qaeda is an international terrorist organization. The Taliban are are Afghans, mostly poor, almost entirely orphans of the 1980s war in Afghanistan, wherein the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan and the United States funded uh, and armed what were called the Mujahideen, which were jihadists. <laughs> the Taliban did not like al-Qaeda. They were not giving refuge to al-Qaeda in the way that it's talked about. Uh, and here's a few inconvenient facts for that narrative. The leader of the Taliban, Mullah Omar, at least he was the leader in the 90s, he's since uh, passed away, Mullah Omar spoke of Osama bin Laden, who had taken, who himself had been in Afghanistan, as in he was living in Afghanistan at the time. He talked about Osama bin Laden, who was a Saudi Arabian, said he is like a chicken bone that I can neither swallow nor cough it up, and he's just stuck in my throat. And what he was referring to was Osama bin Laden and Al Qaeda were a major problem for the Taliban. The Taliban. You can say whatever you want about the way they ruled Afghanistan. They were certainly very strict and religious. Uh, women's rights were certainly abused. Uh, there were all kinds of uh, restrictions on, on minority ethnicities. Their ambitions did not extend past Afghanistan, and they hated that Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda were committing international terrorist attacks because they were drawing the attention of the United States. If you run Afghanistan, the last thing you would want is for the United States to invade your country. So this guy was getting the attention of the United States. The Taliban warned Osama bin Laden many times to stop with that nonsense, you know, because the 9-11 wasn't the first terrorist attack. There were several that preceded it. Before, here's some other, another inconvenient fact. Before 9-11, the Taliban's foreign minister, I think his name is Wakil Ahmed Muta Wakil, tried to warn the United States, that the, these Al-Qaeda guys, you can't trust them. They're plotting something. And they tried to, uh, to warn the U.S. Embassy in Pakistan. They were ignored. Other inconvenient facts are the fact that, and you can read about this in Al Jazeera, the Taliban tried, offered to put Osama bin Laden on trial both before and after 9-11. Uh, they, they wanted to give him an Islamic trial. Uh, after 9-11 happens, the United States demands that the Taliban hand over Osama bin Laden. 
the Taliban's reaction is, okay, we will hand him over to an Islamic country where you can get a, an Islamic trial and you have to pre present evidence. You have to understand what this looks like from the Taliban's point of view. How, they have to maintain credibility amongst their own population. How does it look if some foreign country just demands that, that some person be handed over in your country and refuses to even provide evidence, refuses to, refuses to allow any negotiation, and then you just hand them over, they would lose all credibility. And in Pashtun culture, that's the dominant ethnicity, you don't just turn over somebody, a guest in your, a quote-unquote guest in your house. They have guest rights. Might remind you of Game of Thrones, right? Like, so you're supposed to treat guests correctly. So imagine how Afghans would have reacted if they just turned over Osama bin Laden, no questions asked. So Bush, George Bush says, no, we're, we, we know he's guilty. Just hand him over. We don't negotiate. We don't negotiate with terrorists, which is ironic because what they expected the Taliban to do was negotiate with the United States under the threat of violence. Hand him over or we're going to bomb you. <laughs> that's, that's the subtext. The United States started bombing Afghanistan in October, I think it was October 7, 2001. Again, the Taliban even further says, all right, we'll hand them over. We'll give them to any third country. They could have given them to, to anyone. They could have handed them to Jordan, which is the United States, one of the closest allies in the Middle East. They probably would not have given them, given them up to Israel, but pretty much any other country. The United States says, no, no, we're committed to removing the Taliban from power. They, they bombed the crap out of Afghanistan for a few weeks. By December 7th, 2001, sorry, yeah, I think it is December 7th, the Taliban had completely surrendered. They said, we're, we're done fighting. Uh, all we want in return is amnesty. In other words, we don't want to be pursued. We don't want to be arrested. We, we just want to live out our days in peace. Uh, we'll make peace with the new Taliban government. Donald Rumsfeld, the Secretary of Defense, said not good enough. They, he refused to accept their surrender. And then they had no one to fight, so they just, start, they just pursued these guys. They killed some former Taliban, and, but they just waged war on Afghans, uh, some of whom had nothing to do with the Taliban, and they radicalized the population. They, they drew more people to the Taliban who were left no choice but to fight back. And slowly but surely, the Taliban gained support. They gained fighters, and you can see where they are today. The, the Taliban, whether the United States is there or not, is going to win this war. They're going to take back the country. Now, to keep that in mind when you, when you see on the news that the, all the horrors of the Taliban, that they could have, the United States, first of all, did not have to invade. Uh, the Taliban offered to give up bin Laden. And second of all, the Taliban had surrendered by December of 2001. I'm sorry, that was really long. Do you have any questions about any of that? You mentioned that you can read this on Al Jazeera. Mm -hmm. You said something like that. What, I'll put that? it in the show notes. In fact, I'll, I'll, the t I'll read the title of the article right here. Yeah, the, the title of the article is Al Jazeera. It's, uh, it says, Tal the title is Taliban offered bin Laden trial before September 11th. And it's, this article is from September 11, 2011. So back then, Al Jazeera was putting this out like, wow, we didn't, this 10-year war wasn't necessary. And of course, now it's 10 years after that. So yeah, does, does that surprise you at all that we've been in this 20-year war, yet the Taliban had offered to give up bin Laden uh, after September 11th and before September 11th? I, if I was looking at it like uh, without any prior knowledge of things that do, that do happen in the world, it would surprise me. But I understand that things are never just like you know black and white. There's always like a motive for for things that governments do. So I guess it does make sense that the U.S. needed a reason, a scapegoat, to be um, to have a presence in that country. So they created one. And so yeah, it doesn't doesn't surprise me that much. But it is something that you know wouldn't be, you know, uh, displayed in the news in the United States, because if people understood this, then, you know, there would be some issues arising from that. Yeah, it's, it's a narrative that just gets repeated. So I, I do think it's really important to let people know those things. Like, before we get to this point where you're, you know, Amer we're suddenly so worried about Afghanistan, just remember that this war did not have to happen. It, essentially, the same government is going to return to power that was in power before September 11th. So what did all these people die for? 
right? So how much how much destabilization took place in Afghanistan? They say it's at least 250,000 people were killed. It's probably more like a million. It's very hard to do those kinds of body counts. Our numbers for Americans are about 2,400 Americans were killed, which sounds like a comparatively small number, but of course to those families, it's not small. Many more were injured, uh, probably around 25,000 Americans suffered major injuries, uh, loss of limbs. Many, this is kind of disgusting, but many Americans uh, suffered loss of their genitals from, uh, from landmines, the, the IEDs that were stepped on. That was kind of the signature wound of the war. And something like 30,000 people who served in this war on terror have committed suicide because war does that to people. Uh, soldiers are way overrepresented in suicides. And, you, you know, that's the suffering of Americans. You can imagine the incredible suffering that was done to Afghans who had to live under American bombs, American night raids, where they bust into people's houses looking for people. You know, imagine what that's like for children. American drone strikes that blow up people's weddings, blow up hospitals, blow up funerals. Yeah, so, Joey, I'm ranting. So go, go ahead. What were you going to say? So yeah, what other than having, you know, their presence in another country, what was, you know, the motive, like the reason for extending once they once they uh were able to get the Taliban to surrender, like what was it that they wanted to do after that? Yeah, I mean that at this point it's basically going to be me uh trying to project what I what I think these people's intentions were. Now I think part of it was, you know, December of 2001, right? So if the Taliban surrendered to December 2001, well, living in the United States then, people were bloodlust. They, they wanted blood, basically, for what happened on September 11th. They didn't want to, like, analyze why September 11th happened. And, you know, we can get into that in a second. But there was one sense that, well, we can't just be over December 2001. It's only been three months, right? Uh so there's certainly a bloodlust element. The, you know, Rumsfeld and Bush and Cheney certainly had uh, a an inclination to make it look like they were doing something. Uh, they they wanted a much more expansive war on terror, and they, and they and they consistently said, you know, this is not about one country. It's not just about Osama bin Laden. There's pretty good evidence that they basically let bin Laden slip across the border into Pakistan because they did not want this war to be over so quickly. They had big plans. Uh, I think I shared with you the clip. I forget if I shared with you or not. This was supposed to be the starting point. So uh, this is going to sound a bit conspiratorial, but all the documents are there. So uh, I'm going to backtrack a little bit. In the 1990s, there was a think tank formed called The Project for a New American Century. It always sounds like so tame, like the most evil people on the planet. So like people like talk about like these things that aren't real, like the Illuminati and all these conspiracy theories. I don't know why they do that when the like reality is just as messed up. So this is a group of conservatives, mostly Republicans, that after the Cold War was over, they thought that it was now the United States' right to basically rule the world. And the remaining countries that refused to submit to American dominance, it was time to get rid of them. And one of those countries was Iraq, another was Syria, another was Iran, another was Libya, Sudan. And these guys had a plan, and it's in their, it's in their documents. Uh, you, you can just Google a project for a new American century. Uh, one of their documents called a clean break. Uh, and they articulate that they, what they want to do in the next decade or so is clear out these governments and replace them with governments that are basically attainable to U.S. demands. In other words, they'll allow U.S. corporations to do business there. I, they will uh, so allow U.S. military bases. Basically, the United States, they were, these people were delusional. They thought the United States could control the whole world and these last few remaining countries that don't submit to the U.S., uh, they need to be gotten rid of. So the plan was to take out the government of Syria, Iran, Iraq, Sudan, Libya. And they wanted to do this within, within like a decade. This is like 1998. They probably wanted to have it done by like 2008. They, they were delusional in what they thought the U.S. military could do. What's crazy is, and you, you can, I swear to God you can look this up, they write at the end of this piece, 
This is unlikely, however, without some kind of catastrophic uh, destabilizing event. In other words, they, some, in a, they say an event like Pearl Harbor. In other words, they weren't going to have an excuse to do this kind of thing unless they had some kind of catastrophic event. And of course, the catastrophic event was September 11th. Now, I, I don't want anyone to interpret this as me saying, I don't think these guys planned September 11th. I'm not a 9-11 truther. I think what they did was they saw September 11th, and while most of us were horrified and most Americans were deeply saddened, I think, uh, and I, well, you know, we know that these guys, the, the neoconservatives, the Project for a New American Century, all of whom, almost all of whom ended up in the Bush administration, they saw an opportunity. Literally the day of September 11th, Donald Rumsfeld, the Secretary of Defense, was telling his underlings to find evidence connecting it to Saddam Hussein, even though he was told that Saddam Hussein had nothing to do with it. That's Saddam Hussein from Iraq. So what, why did they, why did they, this long story short, why did they stay in Afghanistan? Why did they expand the war? It's because they wanted to do it long before September 11th. And, and uh, they thought it presented them an opportunity. And more proof of this is, if you can watch, uh, there's a, I'll put this in the show notes as well, Democracy Now!, General Wesley Clark uh, was, I think he was running for president in 2007 or 2008. He says that he walked into Rumsfeld's office and he was speaking to people and his, Rumsfeld's underlings told Wesley Clark like weeks after September 11th, oh yeah, we've drawn up plans to, after Afghanistan, we're going to go to Iraq and topple that government. And in fact, we're going to topple seven governments, excuse me, Seven governments in five years. We're going to attack Iraq, Syria, Libya, Sudan, and end, end up taking out the government of Iran. They said that in 2001, that they are going to replace all these governments. So when you ask why did they stay in Afghanistan, that's one reason. is They, really, they had to check off the box of Afghanistan because that's where bin Laden had been. But really it was going to be an expansive war that took out all these governments. And if you look at which governments were actually the uh, United States went to war with, uh, of course, you know, Iraq, that's probably most of your childhood, the United States was at war in Iraq. They ended up, they took out the government of Libya in 2011. They destroyed that country to the point where it's still at war. They had a major role, the CIA, the State Department in totally destabilizing Syria. They funded uh, jihadists in Syria. Uh, what we called moderate rebels were almost entirely jihadists to try to destabilize the government of Bashar al-Assad. They didn't succeed, but they're still attempting to destroy Syria with economic sanctions. And Afghanistan just became this thing where it was a lot harder than they thought it was going to be. <laughs> they, they, could not, they couldn't, the government they replaced the Taliban with was a bunch of warlords. Uh, they the mistake to believe is that the Taliban were significantly worse than their opposition. So they tried to put in the, the, an Afghan government that was mostly unpopular, couldn't get anything done, uh, that had its own issues with corruption, that had its own issues with abusing women, that uh, could not establish basic functions that governments are supposed to do, especially in the, in the rural countryside. So... Many Afghans don't trust their government because they see it as just a U.S. puppet. And the U.S. was never able to just admit that they lost. Uh, even uh, in 20, 2009, Obama did what was called the surge, where they flooded the country with over 100,000 American troops. And they still couldn't win. They, they, there was nothing they could do that would keep the Taliban from taking back the government because the government they installed was never seen as legitimate. Uh, and lastly, I'll say, why does the United States, why did they stay? Well, war is good for business. War makes a lot, of, not a lot of people, but a small and powerful group of people a lot of money. Companies like Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, uh, DynCorp, all these uh, billions of dollars corporations, uh, they profited from not just the Afghan war, but war in general. They need to, they need to be at war. They need war to make money, to sell weapons. And these big corporations, they fund major think tanks that draw up policy. They fund the politicians that are in Congress. 
Uh, they fund their campaigns. They have massive lobbying campaigns. Uh, so at the end of the day, war is good for business. But the Afghan war just spun out of control to where they, they're also very hubristic. They, they overestimate the power of what the U.S. military can do. And they, didn't, they just didn't understand that you can't force a government onto people with the use of violence, no matter how many people you kill. And in the same, you know, this was true in Vietnam. It was true in Iraq. It's true in Afghanistan. It's going to be true anywhere you invade. And, and Joey, I'll stop, but just imagine another country invaded the United States. It doesn't matter what if you like our government, if you like or hate Joe Biden, if you like or hate Donald Trump. Americans would not tolerate another country in a country's army invading the United States and trying to install a government friendly to to a foreign power. We would fight the same way that Afghans fought. So it doesn't even mean that all the people the United States was fighting and killing and being killed by were pro-Taliban. It just means that oftentimes it just means they don't like foreign powers invading their country. I don't know. Was that clear? Did I answer your question? No, you did. Um, I guess it's just a different expectation than what it's just a different response than what I expected. Uh, since like, I guess the, the idea of like the middle East wars or just like oil, like that's what I've been hearing growing up. Like people are always like, yeah, they're going over there for oil or something like that. So I didn't know that, you know, it goes this deep that it, I didn't know about this, uh, uh, this uh, what was it called the PNAC. Yep. The yeah, I didn't know about all this stuff. So the fact that everything you know has this much detail into it just goes to show that like, unless you research this, you wouldn't know. Yeah, and that that's why I I wanted to have you on, and just because I think that you're speaking for quite a lot of people that you know it, who read you know obviously you read quite a bit. But it, you have to like really dig into this history to, to understand the complete dynamic. And one other thing, as I, and I'll be quick with this, is another thing you're hearing is that this war is 20 years old. And the reality is this war is not 20 years old. It's 40 years old. And this is where we really get into how, just how cynical and how imperialist our government is. The Af Afghanistan has been in a state of warfare since 1979, and the, why? And why was it at war in 1979? Oh, go. Sorry, Joe. Joey, go ahead. I I, I want to see if I'm correct in my understanding of the topic, since one of the books I did read touched on um, this. Uh, this uh, it was a coup, right? It was a coup, an attempt, uh, for, um, yeah, attempted coup with the military, and then. Uh, I also read about the Soviet Union uh, in, invading for a couple of years, which led to arming of uh, rebels or militias by the United States. And then once the USSR pulled out, uh, now you have all these people with guns just left there. And that causes more problems, which, you know, led to like a domino effect to what we're seeing now. Yeah, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, and the only thing I'll add is the government of Afghanistan in 1978-79 was the socialist democratic government of Afghanistan. It, women had equal rights. It was a pretty progressive government. The United States under Jimmy Carter, so we're like going way back before I was born, um, they, and his national security advisors, the big new Brzezinski, they planned to bait the Soviet Union into invading. Uh, so they said that it's a big new Brzezinski has openly talked about this, that we are going to give the Soviet Union their own Vietnam. In other words, we're going to bait the Soviet Union into a war that they will bleed them dry, <laughs> that we're going to force them to invade. Not that the Soviet Union is like innocent. They invaded Afghanistan to try to. So uh, let me make this clear. You were entirely right. So the United States starts funding Muslim extremists. And I don't mean the ever like uh, this is not about Islam. They, they take an extremely violent version of Islam uh, and promoted in Afghanistan with their partners, Saudi Arabia and Pakistan. Uh, you literally have like jihadist textbooks being printed in Nebraska <laughs> like and being and flooding Afghanistan uh, and and all these what we call Wahhabist uh, uh, mosques start popping up in Afghanistan uh, to promote this extreme version of Islam. The United States CIA 
through the Pakistani intelligence services and Saudi Arabia. They flood Afghanistan, like you said, with weapons. And what happened? You know, the, they go to different Islamic extremist groups, and eventually the Soviet Union pulls out. But if, you know, like, you know what it's like. If, if I hand out guns to a bunch of different gang, let just take New York City. Imagine that we were, you know, we were operating an intelligence service and just giving thousands, sorry, millions of dollars of weapons to various gangs around New York City. And then we just said, all right, have at it, whoever. <laughs> and of course, these, what were called the Mujahideen, they go to war with each other. And the United States was not funding a bunch of like uh, doctors and lawyers. These were killers. They, they funded warlords like uh, Gobadin Hekmatar, who whose career started by throwing acid in women's faces in, in Kabul. Um, they funded people like Rashid Dostum, who, uh, when the war, the new war started in 2001, was famous for putting a bunch of Taliban fighters in a shipping container and machine gunning the container, killing hundreds of them, and those that didn't die by bullet wound died by drowning in other people's blood. We're talking about war criminals the United States was funding and continued to fund. Believe it or not, the Taliban, the, most people don't think of the Taliban as an extremist group, and I think they are an extremist group. I certainly don't agree with the Taliban's worldview, but the Taliban was seen by Afghans in the 90s as a stabilizing force because they brought justice to a, what was a chaotic situation in Afghanistan where these warlords were killing, raping, stealing. And, they, and the Taliban brought an extremely strict version of Islamic law, but they did bring some stability, which is why they were able to stay in power uh, from 1994 through about 2001. And it's why they're going to come back to power because whether we like it or not, the Taliban is appealing to a lot of people in Afghanistan. Uh, you know, the you know, I'm going to stop because that was a lot. But I, I think that you have a general pretty good idea of like what, why, why did the Taliban come to power? Well, it was, a, it was destabilization created by the United States and its allies. And, and one last thing, you mentioned oil. Oil actually does have a little bit to do with this. It's not as, as prevalent a reason as Iraq or some of the other countries uh, or Iran. But in Afghanistan there was a plan to build a pipeline called the Unical Pipeline. And the Taliban actually was somewhat okay with it. The, they, the United States did not dislike the Taliban when the Taliban first came to power. They were totally happy to try to do business with the Taliban. They, uh, and Taliban uh, officials were meeting with executives from this company, Unical, to build a pipeline through Afghanistan. It never materialized, but... Uh, but yeah, Afghanistan is kind of in a key location where if you wanted to ship oil from uh, across from India to, to Europe, Afghanistan's in prime, a prime spot for that. And the last thing is, uh, in even David Petraeus, the famous disgraced general, said this, there is a trillion dollars worth of minerals in Afghanistan. Uh, I cannot imagine that that plays a small role in why the United States stays in Afghanistan. So I don't know, any thoughts about that? It sounds like you already knew quite a bit about how we got here. Yeah, so I guess I, as I mentioned, it was like the, the books I've read and um, your podcast also gave me a lot of insight into what was going on. Yeah. Um, well, thank, well, thank you for listening to the podcast. And if, I'll, yeah. I'll say that... I'm not an expert on, on Afghanistan, but we did have Anand Gopal on the podcast who wrote a great book that I, I'll recommend. It's called No Good Men Among the Living. And it really goes into the background here about how the United States has been involved in Afghanistan, what that's been, what experience that has been for people who actually live in Afghanistan. So, Joey, if it's all right with you, I want to talk about some of the, some of the myths that you're going to, a lot of people are promoting, and sadly I'm seeing this even in pretty respectable uh, publications like NPR. So let, let me ask you, like, what, what is your impression of why U.S. media is saying that the United States cannot pull out of Afghanistan? What, what, do, you, what do you imagine the consequences are going to be based on what you, you've seen? So I'm already seeing it that if the United States pulls out, things are going to go, uh, revert back to like a lawless, not, well, 
an extremist state where people are being persecuted for uh, things that they wouldn't have been if the U.S. was there. So I guess the story they're trying to put out is that the United States is going to keep the area stable and keep it as humane as possible. And once we leave, things are just going to fall right back to how they were. Yeah, uh, I think I've seen a lot of that same language used. Uh, well, to an extent, that is correct. There, there is going to be war. But you have to approach that with a few questions. How long should the United States stay in Afghanistan, occupying other people's territory on the other side of the planet? Should this just be a permanent occupation? In that case, shouldn't Afghans like have a right to vote in U.S. elections? Are we just annexing Afghanistan? The other thing is that, like I just told you, is the, the Taliban, in terms of a lawless state, extending a war longer by keeping the U.S. there is not a way to promote peace. It's just to continue a war. Now, it is true that the Taliban are probably going to uh, input a version of Islamic law that is going to be quite strict. It's probably going to be quite repressive, uh, especially toward women, that, at least historically. But that I want to address that one because... That is, and I saw this in an NPR article today where they promote, they talked about four reasons why, sorry, that's my daughter crying in the background, um, four reasons why the, why the world is concerned about Afghanistan. And one of the, of course, the number one thing they say is we're concerned about women. Well, I'm concerned about women too. We should all be concerned about women. Uh, we should be concerned about women everywhere. And these things really fall apart when you start looking at, well, who are the United States' closest allies? The United States' closest ally, one of its closest allies is Saudi Arabia, which is a country that beheads women for sorcery. Um, women are, are extremely repressed in Saudi Arabia. Is the United States concerned about women in Afghanistan? Well, the evidence doesn't add up to that either. Like I told you, the United States overthrew the secular socialist government of Afghanistan and promoted and funded and armed the most radical form of Islam uh, in Afghanistan, which brought to power eventually the Taliban. Uh, the United States couldn't change the condition of women in Afghanistan by occupying the country with more than 100,000 American troops. How is it that they think they're going to change the condition of women in Afghanistan by continuing to occupy the country? And, and lastly, just say that women are, and children are the primary victims of war. The, when the United States is at war in countries, the people who are most vulnerable are people are, of course, uh, there are soldiers who fight in the war and militants, but the deprivation caused by war the destruction to food sources, the destruction of water supplies, the destruction of basic human infrastructure, that affects women. And I, I'm not, sh incredibly, and I'm not sure why that calculation isn't included when we start, you know, when U.S. media, especially and U.S. politicians start talking about how concerned we are about the condition of women in Afghanistan. Women in Afghanistan are not served by having the United States at war in the country. And Last thing I'll say on that, if we're so concerned about women in Afghanistan, the, the knee-jerk reaction to want to, to use our military there, as if the U.S. military is some feminist organization, right? The U.S. military, which is plagued by uh, rape scandals all the time. The United States military needs to leave. And you know what we can do? We can give refugee status to and, and entry into the United States to anybody from Afghanistan who wishes to come. That's what we owe Afghanistan. We don't owe them more violence. Uh, we're not, we're not going to help women by continuing it to be involved in this war. All right, so ha I'll address one other myth. There is this thing you constantly hear that Afghanistan will become a haven for terrorists. And Right. There's so much wrong with that with that statement. As we talked about earlier, the Taliban does not like Al-Qaeda. No one has more motivation to ensure that Al-Qaeda does not come back to Afghanistan than the Taliban, because the Taliban doesn't want the U.S. coming in and destroying their country again. Does the Taliban share some similar views to groups like Al-Qaeda? They share some similar views on uh, how society should be run, but they are not an international terrorist organization the way Al-Qaeda is.
So no one has more motivation to keep al-Qaeda from having refuge in Afghanistan than the Taliban does. The other thing is the United States is not concerned about Islamic extremism uh, insofar as unless it can be used to justify larger wars. The United States has supported Islamic extremism in Syria, in Afghanistan even, in, in the Balkans in the 90s. In, in Libya and Yemen and Syria, the United States was literally fighting on the same side as al-Qaeda. So this idea that, that Afghanistan is going to be the place that we need to worry about extremism, well, the largest al-Qaeda stronghold in the world right now is in Syria, and it is protected by U.S. military and NATO, and that's in the Idlib province. And the last thing is just because if even if al-Qaeda does come back to Afghanistan, there is, there is this assumption that because al-Qaeda is somewhere, that means they're being supported by the government in that, uh, of that country. Al-Qaeda planned 9-11, not just in Afghanistan, but in Germany, in San Diego, in the Philippines, but we're not talking about invading those places. So, you know, there's the whole terrorism thing is, is such a, it's such an excuse for a continuing this presence. We have plenty of domestic security to keep terrorists out. Yeah. Well, one thing that came up and came up was what can like a person like me, you know, do about it? Like, obviously, you know, this is wrong. Like we shouldn't be doing things like this, but I don't see a, a way that I can influence, you know, what's happening. So are there like established ways that, you know, we can take part in preventing things like this, maybe um, researching something in order to, you know, put elected officials in certain positions? Like what is something that the average American person can do for this? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think it starts with questioning. I mean, that we need to question this totally militarized culture that we have. We need to question the quote-unquote good motivations that our government officials have. You know, suddenly we're very concerned about Afghanistan. Where was this concern for the 20 years that the United States was at war in the country? It's not, you know, it's not like the United States was running a charity organization. They were killing thousands and thousands of people while they were there, dropping bombs on people, you know, torturing people at, at, what we, at black sites. Uh, so to start with is to just be questioning. Right. If you hear about about another country being talked about uh, as some potential threat, or that our officials want to do something to the another country, be it war or economic warfare like sanctions, I would say start with the premise that you should be questioning that kind of rhetoric. You should question our very militarized society. Right. Like. We live in a society where militarism is everywhere you look, right? So you look, you walk through your town. Uh, I know you grew up in the Bronx. The Bronx is probably a little bit better than most places in America, but in terms of commemoration. But you look around most towns in America. What do you see? What do you see statues of? What do you see memorials to? It's always soldiers. It's always war. We we valorize war in this country like it's something we should be proud of, right? Like, you know, how we have two holidays about to, for, for people who serve in wars, right? Uh, we have Veterans Day, Memorial Day. And now, of course, like, I feel for veterans, especially those suffering uh, from, from injuries or, of course, those who are killed or people suffering from post-traumatic stress. But to continue a, a tradition that valorizes them and communicates the message that serving in war is something good, we are only ensuring that we're going to continue to be in these kinds of wars. We need to demilitarize our culture. We need to stop having movies that portray the U.S. military and U.S. CIA as these noble institutions, right? So the, the Pentagon spends a lot of money and has edited the scripts of, of well over a thousand movies to, to portray a pro-military, pro-Pentagon message. And, it, and we actually did a podcast on this with a guy named Tom Secker. But, you know, if you see military equipment in a movie, you can believe that it was, it was probably edited by the Pentagon. So start with that premise, is that you should question the militarism in our society. You should question your public officials. Like we've gone over in this podcast, you should question the quote-unquote good intentions when we are committing acts of violence in other countries. 
you should question all the narratives that that go into justifying violence against other people around the world. I I understand that, and I I know that having a discussion like we are now definitely will be a good way for people to just learn. Like even if two people that don't uh, understand the topic very well have a discussion, you know, they can bounce off ideas from each other. But the issue is that in what setting can you have a conversation about this? Because this isn't something that you can just talk about when um, riding on the bus or at work. Like, you know, these aren't discussions that people are open to having. So how can we normalize having discussions about stuff like this? Yeah, that's that's also a great question because this stuff gets kind of academic at some point. And it's also just far away, right? Like, you know, like we're not, we're really not affected directly by our wars. You know, like, you know, some of us have family and friends that served in the military. Uh, they're affected, but most Americans don't see this stuff. Like, right, it, the bombs aren't falling in Manhattan or Albany, where you are. So I think it's important to establish empathy. You know, and like, there's a... For me, the the way this should be starting is in school. You know, like I've been a teacher now. I'm about to start my 15th year as a teacher. And I don't know how good a job I used to do when uh, when you were at CSSJ, but you know, I think that one of my goals is to communicate that history isn't just something that played out in the past. We're seeing the effects of it now. And to establish that these the, the U.S. policy has real-world effects on other people outside of our borders, imaginary borders that were created through violence, I think that it really is important to communicate a sense of global empathy in young people. I, I, th I think that's how we're going to kind of end this permanent militarism that we have. Now, now you have, like, you're right, like, not everyone's having conversations about this, so... I have a lot of people in my life that don't really study this stuff or care about this stuff. You know, in, in the United States, people have a lot going on. You know, we don't, we don't, people have jobs to do. People don't have as much, that much time off to like dig into this stuff. So I think just, you know, when you engage in these conversations with people, you know, you'll hear people talk about Afghanistan, you know, just in a polite way, I think it's worth, you know, like sharing some information like, hey, actually, you know, the Taliban did not attack the United States on September 11th. You know, just clue people in. I know it's hard to do that sometimes without coming off as condescending as I'm sure I do sometimes. But it's important that people understand the truth and not just the mainstream narrative on these things. You know, so, you know, you talk to your family, you talk to your friends, you know, and it's very easy to get angry at people for not knowing this stuff, but it's not their fault that they don't know, you know, right? We have a whole system that's organized to promote the mythology of American exceptionalism. So you have to be patient with people. And I, of course, I struggle with this myself, right? So I'll, I'll be arguing with like my mom or my brother or uh, friends or fa other family members. like. And the problem is not that they aren't intelligent, it's that they've been fed the wrong information. So it, you know, as much as you can bring up and correct the, the record for people, uh, and and point them to the right sources, right? Like you know, it's not like I'm I'm going to include in the show notes some articles. I'm not reaching out to like uh, to like obscure uh, journals on this stuff. A lot of times the information is there if you're willing to look for it. It's just you know sometimes it's on the back page. Sometimes it's in the 35th paragraph of a New York Times article, uh, and you just have to be cognizant that there's good information out there, but you have to look for it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Uh, definitely the, the, the key point that I took away was building empathy for like just anything outside the United States. Because I feel that a lot of our uh, attention is, like you said, inwards, like uh, about our jobs or things that are happening in our society, the prices of gas increasing, things like uh, gun violence. I, we never, never stop and think about other countries, like even our neighbors, Canada or Mexico, like you, you won't hear people talking about, oh, something happened in Canada, something happened in Mexico. So you would definitely not hear anyone talk about something happening on the other side of the world. So I guess for me, what I, I would try doing now is um, just instead of, you know, going right into the, the dark things that happen in other countries, maybe just bring attention to anything that's happening anywhere else. Like recently, I've been telling people, oh, have you seen what's happening in uh in Italy, that region with the with the climate 
And that's a good way to like, you know, just have our attention in other places rather than just here. Yeah, that was well said. And one last thing I want to say before, I know we got to wrap up. You know, the, I think the big premise is a lot easier to understand than like getting into the nitty gritty. Um, and, you know, we started with that premise of, all right, so why, at, at its very, like, looking at it from afar, mo- like an alien would see this as totally ridiculous. You have the richest country in the world occupying a country on the other side of the planet trying to decide what happens there in extremely violent ways 10,000 miles away, right? The middle of North America is trying to control Central Asia. The other premise, the United States has the right to invade a country because they, someone suspected of terrorism was living there. And then the other side of it, you know, as a closing premise, we need to analyze what terrorism is, right? The terrorism is a tactic employed by people who are trying to seek some kind of political cause. Now, 9-11 was horrible, but the reaction to it was to commit an act of terrorism. You know, the war on terror was, a, was an act of terrorism and continued act of terrorism that has killed somewhere between two and four million people in reaction to an attack that killed 3,000 people. You know, how many lives have been ruined because of the U.S. reaction to terrorism? We need to be introspective, and, and this has nothing to do with, like, blaming America or blaming the people who died on September 11th for the terrorism of that day, but we can look to what caused September 11th. If we really want to prevent terrorism, we need to look at what why terrorism happens. And Osama bin Laden was quite clear about why he attacked the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. And his reasons were continued U.S. support for the monarchies and military dictatorships in the uh, Middle East, such as Hosni Mubarak's Egypt, Saudi Arabia's monarchies, Jordan's monarchy. Now, we were supporting some of those brutal regimes on the planet that brutalized their Muslim populations. Another reason, he said, was the U.S. continued unquestioned support for Israel as they subjugated Palestinians and killed them in the thousand and along with Lebanese Arabs. These are real grievances. And the last thing he, he said was that the United States is continuing to starve to death hundreds of thousands of Iraqis, which was true throughout the 1990s. U.S. economic sanctions killed hundreds of thousands of Iraqi babies. And when, on television, when she was questioned about it, Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, when she, when she was asked about it, she said, in response to hundreds of thousands of children dying, she said, I think the price is worth it. You know, people see that around the world. You know, if we can justify, and we shouldn't, but if, if we react to our an act of terrorism that killed 3,000 people by bombing the Middle East and destroying several countries, killing several million people, maybe we can start to understand why the actions of the U.S. that kill people around the world might lead to violence visited upon us. And if we want to really end that cycle of violence, we need to be introspective and question our own country's behavior. Because after all, our own country is really the only country we have any say over, right? You can complain all you want about the governments of other countries, but you have no impact on other countries. We really only have the ability to affect our own government's behavior. And if we want to be safer, we need to demand that our government behaves in a less imperialist, uh, less militarized way. Does that make sense, Joey? Yeah, definitely. uh, Definitely a lot to take in. Yeah. Well, that's, I think we're going to be seeing a lot on Afghanistan in in the last few hours I've seen that Kabul, the capital, is uh, on the verge of being taken by the Taliban. So we're going to continue to follow what's going on here. And, and again, I don't, I don't think it's going to be pleasant for the people in Afghanistan. I think that we need to look at this as a consequence of U.S. militarism and not something that's going to be solved with more U.S. militarism. You know, and then in terms of what we can do going forward, I, I would encourage people to push the U.S. government to accept refugees from Afghanistan, right? So Iran is accepting a lot of refugees from Afghanistan. This country that's, you know, Iran is supposedly this evil country. They're, they're going to be accepting a lot more refugees than the U.S. is. They share a border with Afghanistan. The United States is one of the main authors of that country's destruction. So 
If we want to help Afghans, we can do it in a non-militarized, non-violent way, except for refugees. And like you said, Joey, uh, you know, just build empathy toward people that exist outside of our own social circles. Yeah, so that's about all I have to say. Uh, Joey, we'll, how about we check in again on this situation in the next month or two, and, and hopefully we have some more insight and, and positive news coming out of Central Asia. Yeah, I'm definitely very curious to see what happens in the next, you know, 30 days over there. Yeah. Well, Joey, this is awesome. I definitely, it was good to get back in touch with you. And, you know, I, I know you're starting your PhD program next week, so you'll have to keep us updated on that. I'm sure you'll be, uh, you'll be studying the sciences, hopefully, bringing some research that can get us out of this <laughs> crisis that we're in with COVID, glo- global warming, uh, all the, the tragedies of the environment and, and the world that we live in, we're going to count on people of your generation to fix. So good luck with that. And thank you, everyone, for listening to In the Context of Empire. You can definitely check out our blog at inthecontextofempire.com. You can t- check out some of my writing at Covert Action Magazine as well. And thanks for listening. Joey, I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks for having me.